Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, Shiloh, we are moving in to uh, more of the details of the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's here, the people of Ammon. So last week we we talked about how they had all repented and decided that they were going to follow the teachings uh, or the preaching of Ammon and his brethren. And here we get into more the specifics of the covenant that they make. Uh, and then the story afterwards of sort of, you know, their the testing of that covenant, covenant or not so much testing, but... Um, you know, what their experiences are in trying to keep that covenant. Yeah, this is an amazing story. I, I'm going to have a little bit of difficulty getting through this one. <laughs> I already know. Yeah, I mean, I, I can one... understand. There's, this is a very somber part of the Book of Mormon. You know, we thought Ammonihah was, was difficult. It was, but this is something that kind of, you know, drags out and we, we get more of the experience of these people and, what they're really trying to to build and become and just be, I guess. And we really see here that final beatitude, right? That blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. And uh, these people really have taken upon themselves the name of Christ, um, which we'll talk about it a little bit here because uh, they, they, they don't literally take upon themselves the name of Christ in one of the parts here. Uh, they do something different which is a good little discussion to have, but they, they certainly show by their actions that they have. Um, and so that, that definitely, that's the experience they had. And that, that's definitely the more important part. Yeah. So I figured to begin with, before getting into the discussion of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, there is a really good contextual discussion that we can have with the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that I think really adds a necessary layer of analysis to what is going to happen because these people are definitely walking the path of Christ. They are walking the path that typifies of Christ, you know, basically following Christ to Calvary, as it were, you know, we're commanded to take our cross and follow him. And that's exactly what they're doing. So with the Beatitudes, that's fascinating. There's eight Beatitudes and they are in sequential order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And each one is predicated on the beatitude before it. So you can't truly really understand number six unless you've worked on one through five. And you can't work on eight unless you've done one through seven. And number one is where you start. And so with the beatitudes, just to go over rather quickly, because we could spend hours just on this alone, but for time's sake, because... We already have. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to spend quite a bit of time right now with this story. In the Beatitudes, we have this progression, and it starts with being poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, this poor in spirit is 
is often talked about as the emptying. There is a type of poverty of spirit where we have drained our physical ego, our physical identities, the natural man. You know, that's the Book of Mormon term for it, the natural man. Everything that connects us to the flesh and everything that makes us fear leaving this life, everything that makes us fear death, everything that makes us fear not having enough, everything that makes us fear that we're insufficient, every identity that otherizes us from someone else. All of these things are the natural man. We cannot be in unity with each other unless we love people to do things differently than us and find a, a solidification, a way to be solidified with each other in the process. So to be poor in spirit is the necessary emptying out of everything that we're already filled with. Christ cannot fill us with anything else unless we are emptied. If we're already full vessels, he can't empty us out. When we and when we change our egos this way, and when we change our identities, there is a necessary mourning that happens because of it. This is often typified like Lot's wife that turns back onto Sodom. It's the leaving of the identity, the leaving of everything, and the desire to go back. If we want to get really detailed with it, Brigham Young called it this the dog returning to its vomit. It's we want to go back to that thing that we've left and discarded behind. And there's this mourning of what has been lost. And yet we're told, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Well, once we've emptied and we are mourning lost identity, at that point, Christ says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the meek are those who stand there in their nothingness, who have emptied everything out and who have lost their egos and have lost that identity and have, and have released it and have, and have just let it go. And now they are in a place where they can look around the around and see everyone else who is also suffering in their own natural man. And you're like, oh my goodness. And you start to realize just your state of being in emptiness. And in that state, once you have let go of everything that the world has, all the world's ties, everything the world binds you down with, then in this moment, you are allowed to be filled and that's where it comes in next. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And you're filled with this righteousness. You are filled with this knowledge of God because you've been emptied out and now God has room to be able to fill you. Now you've been filled and now you are standing there in this amazing new place. Now the Lord comes along and says, blessed are now those who are merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Because once you have realized what God has done for you in filling you up, you realize that you can be nothing else but merciful to anyone else. And everyone walking this path, you did not earn this. You did not deserve this. You have not done anything but emptied yourself out and have released and have just let go. And God has done the rest. And in this, you realize that you cannot be anything else but merciful to everyone else around you. It's just the natural state of being. Now, you can't fake this. And God says, unless you think you can fake this, blessed now are the pure in heart. Because the pure in heart are those who see God. See, you may do the outward manifestation perfectly. You may go to church perfectly. You may pay your tithing perfectly. You may follow all the steps perfectly. But that's not being pure in heart. That's the outward manifestation. Christ ridiculed the people who thought that the outward manifestations alone were what made you a member of the kingdom of God. 
But here it is, as Christ is saying, no, it's about the purity in their vessel. You truly have to empty this out. And when you do, you see the face of God. Now, that face of God can be a lot of different things. But from my own study, my own experience, the primary way that I see the face of God is in the eyes of the other. Is to see those that mourn, is to see those around me who are going through those same experiences that I am, where I have been treated with mercy from God and I treat others with mercy. And just like King Benjamin said, that we learn these things that we may learn that we are in the service of our fellow beings. We're only in the service of our God. And that through serving each other and being there with each other and, and bringing each other in and looking at all people with the humanity and dignity that God sees them with, we see the face of God. Now, this whole process of the emptying and the being filled and the learning mercy and the learning of to be pure in heart and seeing that face of God in the other, only then can we possibly understand what Christ means when he finally comes along and he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Those who make peace. Because peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is, the, peace is not you know, the destination. Peace is the way. And when we look at this and we realize that you have to go through this process to be the peacemaker that Christ is talking about, you can't fake this kind of peace. You have to have an inner peace first. And so blessed are the peacemakers. They're the children of God. They're the ones that have now had the mirror of God in their countenance. They've truly become like God. And it's in this place, though, that God's going to say, lest you think that now you've got it, no one is going to understand you. No one is going to get you. No one is going to comprehend what this thing is, is that you're living. Because now you think you've gone through this whole process and it's going to be easy. I tell you, blessed now are those that are persecuted. Because you're going to be persecuted. But not just over anything. Persecution just for persecution's sake, to go out and to... Anybody can be persecuted. Anybody can go out and can call another person a name and then get a retaliation and feel persecuted. This isn't, you know, a, a victimization. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, for you shall have great joy. Be exceedingly glad, for great shall be your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets were before you. See, you're not alone. And you're not just being persecuted because of some narrative that you've created and put out there and now is being fought back, but you have truly emptied yourself. You've become as I have. And now you will find yourself on the cross for the other in the way that I did. Because what Christ has done for us in infinite and eternal ways, we're called to do for the other in temporal and finite ways. This is just the Beatitudes. We haven't got even 12 verses into the Sermon on the Mount yet, and yet we've realized we have to radically change who and everything that we are. And you have to be a Beatitude person to even be able to comprehend the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. That's why the Beatitudes are the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. First things first. You've got to be this person to even understand what it means that when men shall revile you and persecute you, that when people come up and smite you on, one, on the right cheek, it's not just a matter of how you're going to respond to violence. It's an entire way of being. 
And when men will come along you and sue you with the law and ask for your coat, you're going to just freely give your coat, but you're also going to give your best jacket as well. And when men come in and try to conscript you, you're going to go with them and you're not going to go just one mile, but you're going to go two. Not just because of some tactic, but you truly understand what it means to be Christ because that's what Christ would do. Because it's about the other. We learn that our personal identities melt away as we begin to serve and it's not I, but a we. And so when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, and I begin to look at the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and their response and how they're coming to this new identity, Ben, it's just, it's powerful. It's really powerful. We see that process that they go through, um, and we don't see every step, you know, um, although we do have some some decent detail on their story, um, you know, we're always wanting more. We We kind of joked about how Mormon throws in these things that uh, would be, uh, kind of seem to take up space, like, uh, <laughs> you know, the monetary system and stuff like that. And it would be nice to just, just get a little bit more of this pattern of Zion, but that kind of begs the question, doesn't it? You know, like our, or would be, we be ready for it? Would we know what we're seeing if it were given to us? I don't know. Um, and, and I think that maybe that means there is plenty there for us to learn from if we'll just be humble and be willing to see God in it, right, as, as the Beatitudes say. Um, so I, uh, as I was reading through this this time, I, I did uh, pick out a, a little bit more consistent narrative, I feel like, than I, than I saw before. Um, and there's a lot more descriptive uh, things about how Ammon acts and the people act and the Nephites and the Lamanites all act. And it helps us sort of contextualize uh, the narrative that Mormon is is telling us here and giving us sort of all these different perspectives on what it means to really love as opposed to what it means to fear, what it means to really seek peace and be a peacemaker, as opposed to one who is contentious. Um, when Christ comes, it's one of the first thing he tells the Nephite. One of the first things he tells the Nephites, you know, to do away with contention, because that's not his doctrine. His doctrine is peace, and um, so we kind of see the different attitudes here among. Uh, a lot of the different characters or groups of people in this story. And uh, as I was reading this, I kind of, kind of came across a continuum of, of attitudes, I should say. Now, this is, this is basically made up. <laughs> I just made it up while I'm looking through it. But it helped me sort of see the different mindsets um, towards war, contention versus peace that uh, are evident in the Book of Mormon. What sort of sparked my idea on this was a uh, paper uh, written by David Pulsifer where he discusses the historical um, view of Latter-day Saints towards this narrative, this story of the Book of Mormon. Um how this story fit into Latter-day Saint doctrine and theology. Whereas, you know, what is the 
um, orthodox interpretation of this story? What are we supposed to learn from it? What are the doctrines we're supposed to take away from this? And whereas, um, you know, back around 1900, the turn of the century and before, in that period, the narrative was typically one of testimony and and nonviolence or some might call it pacifism or whatever that sort of changed into um taking this story and um what do you say like trip not trivializing it but um, putting conditions on it saying okay so this isn't this doesn't tell us a this doesn't teach us a broader uh, principle about war it just teaches us a broader principle about sin in general and so we should take that and and interpret it as such so this story has then been taught simply in an allegorical way of how we give up sin instead of simply focusing on the idea the concept that they gave up violence the idea that it was oh we're just going to we're just going to talk about this in an allegorical way of us giving up sin so circling back to the beatitudes on this i think that we we see evidence here of this people uh, truly in their hearts going through this process and and becoming the children of god and we see that, um, you know, even in contrast to some of the things that Ammon says and does, and he's even amazed. Ammon himself is amazed by their love and <clears throat> how, how far down the path towards Christ, so to speak, I guess you could say that they have, have gone. And so it's kind of a fulfillment. We see this fulfillment of the beatitudes in in the experience of this people yeah i really like that article ben from david pulsifer for those who may not know david pulsifer is a professor at byu idaho and the article we'll link the the article to the show notes so you can download it and read it if you want to also if you want the kind of the short and condensed version if you go to wikipedia um, and you look up anti-nephi lehi's um, under the segment significance to the latter-day saint movement what it does is it goes through, just like Ben has said, but it goes through that over the last hundred years, the church has very much looked at this story in different ways and church culture. Uh, it, from the early 1900s, it was largely seen as that civil disobedience, right? And it was it was in the whole polygamy narratives of the church's civil disobedience with how that worked. And then it went to being used as a type of pacifist nonviolence narrative. And what I think is really interesting is that from the 1950s and 1980s, just how much the church culture narrative changed according to the story and how they used this story, because Professor William Barrett at BYU, who had been in the church education system and had had a lot of different positions through church education, finally became a professor of church history at BYU. He wrote a famous book called The Restored Church. Um, it was a, a book that was used for a very long time. I have like two copies, three copies that I've just inherited along the way. It was just, it was so prolific back in the day, but he was directly responsible for bringing the ROTC to BYU. And he took the pacifist approach to the anti-Nephi Lehi story. And he is the one who really wrote the first critique 
that it was an interesting experiment about non-resistance, but that it was not really practical and that he ended up promoting more of a just war theory. And his book and his critique of it was largely then reprinted into church manuals, which went against what the church manuals had said before. And so it just changed the narrative and how we looked at it. Now, the Wikipedia article does a good job as well of going through and showing how iconography and imagery in the, the Book of Mormon pictures, for instance, Arnold Freeberg was commissioned to draw the and to illustrate the pictures of the very muscly, machismo uh, characters mm-hmm. in the Book of Mormon, you, you know, like, you know, Mormon who has you know a bicep bigger than my head, you know, <laughs> like Nephi, <laughs> who's like seven feet tall and ripped. And, and so they're having this very interesting characterization about what it means to be a man and what it means to, to stand forward in power and courage. And a lot of it is in war type situations. And so that iconography won out against other illustrations of the same kind of stories. And so that really did change the church narrative from one to the other until finally, just like you said, Ben, now all the scripture, the church's literature looks at this story more in metaphorical meanings about burying our sin and, and getting rid of our sin and burying it in the ground and getting rid of it than actually talking about a nonviolent message. But going back to uh, chapter 23, where it says that thousands were brought to a knowledge of the Lord. Thousands were brought to believe in the traditions of the Nephites. And I think this uh, verse 5 is really important because it's not just that they were brought to a knowledge of the Lord, but they specifically were brought into, into the traditions of the Nephites. And I think this is important because in Mosiah 5, you have King Benjamin who's talking about taking upon ourselves the name of the Lord, that there's no other name that we can, under any other head that we can be free, right? I think it's uh, Mosiah 5, 8. And in that, the anti-Nephite Lehi's are looking for a new name for the, well, <laughs> I got ahead of myself. The, these people, the Lamanites, are looking for a new name, and they decide that they're going to call themselves the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And this name, we really, we still don't know what this name means. It's just this, everybody's lots got- lots of theories. Yeah. Lots of theories, right? So, you know, we have different theories that it means that, uh, you know, they're not descendants of Nephi, but of Lehi. So they're kind of like, they're not Nephi, but they are Lehi. Um, Hugh Nibley's uh, famous that he takes an anti and to be a type of Egyptian reflective of just that it, it it's not really, he says the one of Nephi and Lehi. So it's, it's just kind of like we're entering into the Nephi tradition and of the Lehi tradition, like the, the true narrative. Um, so they're not quite there into that place that Hakeem Ozai talks about, about keeping ourselves the name of Christ. They're, but they're coming out of false traditions and they're stepping stones into new things. And I think that's I think it's fascinating. I think that's really cool for the Lord to prosper his people in their progression, that as they're trying to work these things out and to give give away old identities and kind of see where their new identities are leading, that they try to call themselves by different names. And yeah, I just I, I see that as evidence just of their emptying, right? Of of them being willing to to move in this direction of of finding a new identity and, and this is a lot to do at once. And so um, them taking upon this name um, is is an interesting sort of contrast to what we would expect, right? We would expect them to be called Christians or or something to that effect, um, but but they don't do that, and um, I'm I, it's not really clear to me why. But again, I think it seems to be tied to this idea that 
part of their conversion or a big part of their conversion seemed to be in this context, very cultural, you know, that Ammon's coming among them and he's not just teaching them the gospel, but he's teaching them the traditions of the people of Nephi. And so when they're leaving behind their identity, they kind of are attaching to this, this Nephite identity. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't hear a ton more about, um, these people later on, but they do remain sort of a separate people. And so, um, they do develop their own traditions, uh, obviously that become very distinct from the Nephites. And, and this becomes obvious pretty quick. Um, there's, there's an interesting point at the beginning of, of chapter 23. And, and I don't, wouldn't normally point out something in a chapter heading because it's not scripture, but I kind of want to contradict the chapter heading a bit on this because the first line, at least I'm in the, um, the newer version of the book of Mormon that has new chapter headings. And I'm not sure if 23 is the same in the old one or not. But it says the first phrase is religious freedom is proclaimed. But um, what's really interesting is they're still under a king at this point, right? They've got Lamoni's father. And in verse 2, it says he sent a decree among all them that they shouldn't cast them into prison towards the end of the verse, but that they should have free access to their houses and also their temples and their sanctuaries. Okay, you know, maybe they thought that was religious freedom. <laughs> That's not what we would call it right now, right? That's not what we would term as religious freedom, right? <laughs> uh, the king saying, no, you you have to let these people in your house to talk to you. <laughs> right. right? It's, it doesn't sound like religious freedom. It sounds a little bit more like a state religion, you know, at this point. And, um, uh, you know, this he's, he's so zealous, right, to have this what he has experienced shared with others and he has this power of the king right so of course i'm gonna make everybody listen right um and uh, you know all of this is coming from his desire to to share and, and love but uh obviously i you know we we would have a little bit of qualms with this in terms of our liberty right in terms of rights and and so forth but this is his tradition right that that you can do this you can just go and and I, you know, I'm the king, so I can tell them they can they can do whatever they want. Anyway, I thought that was a little point about a little interesting point that the chapter heading, in my opinion, doesn't quite describe what's going on uh, exactly correctly. So um, there is uh, rebellion against this action, right? Um, a big part of the Lamanites do not like the fact that their king of kings has. Uh, converted and is uh, basically becoming a Nephite now and they're not happy about this so they send an army to depose him as king there's a, a civil war that happens well it would be a civil war if these people hadn't made a covenant to lay down their arms and so it turns into something completely different and this is fascinating how this all plays out yeah because in verse 6 of 23 and as sure as the Lord liveth, so sure as many as believed or as many as were brought to a knowledge of the truth through the preaching of Ammon and his brethren, according to the spirit of revelation and prophecy and the power of God, working miracles in them. Yea, I say unto you, as the Lord liveth, as many of the Lamanites as believed in their preaching and their con they were converted unto the Lord, never did fall away. For they became a righteous people. They did lay down the weapons of their rebellion that they did not fight against God any more, neither against any of their brethren. That's a, that's a fascinating verse, and there's, there's going to be so many more of these, even more direct. He's calling them the weapons of their rebellion, and it's against God and their brethren. And so it's like, 
is this is this a metaphorical way? Is this, is he being poetic here? Because he's literally going to come in. He's going to clarify between w- weapons of rebellion and the weapons that they in their weapons of war. So he comes down here to verse thirteen, and these are the names of the cities which the Lamanites were converted into the Lord, and these are they that laid down the weapons of their rebellion, yea, all of their weapons of war, and they were Lamanites. And so I, I think there's actually maybe a little bit more metaphorical use here. Obviously, it means they buried their weapons of war, but I think Mormon is trying to give us a poetic license here that it may be all weapons that we try to use against each other. The sword is just one of them. You know, it's, it's interesting the fact it's a nonviolent principle that human beings naturally cannot inflict violence upon each other. There's a psychological mechanism in all normal people that you cannot hurt another person who you perceive as a human being. The brain triggers that. For you to commit violence upon another person, you your brain has to overcome that natural trigger and see the other person as something less than human. And so that's why whenever you see people fighting with each other, there is a positioning that they usually square off with, and there's usually name-calling. Like 99.9% before a fight, there's name-calling of some sort. And it's in the naming that the brain is labeling the other person as something less than human to rationalize and to overcome that trigger to create violence upon the other. And so when I look at this and they say they're putting away all of their weapons of rebellion, I'm wondering if they're recognizing that that's more than just the sword. That's putting away all of the weapons that they have to otherize each other. They no longer see anyone else except in the lens that they are a child of God. There's no more weapons in it at all. We truly love God with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength, and we truly love our neighbors ourselves. You know, and that does speak a little bit to the common narrative interpretation of this story as something more of a basic principle in terms of giving up our sin, you know, not just our tendencies to violence, but our, you know, giving up all of our sin, burying it to be converted to the Lord. And so obviously I I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that interpretation. I think it's a good one. Um, we just, we ought not to focus on it as the only uh, lesson from this story. You know, there's also some very specific things that we can learn about uh, this people in, in terms of what they did in consequence of their covenants. You know, over, uh, you know, in, in conjunction with what you were just saying, you know, over in chapter 24, after a lot of these things start start happening, the Lamanites come and they attack them. We have this, or the Lamanites are coming to attack them. So the king of the Lamanites, who isn't uh, Lamoni's father anymore because he has died, but it's a guy who actually literally names himself anti-Nephi-Lehi. And he... <laughs> I think that's really cool, by the way. I'm like, so it's, it's wait, Lamoni's wait brother, probably his older brother. Yeah. And he, he he's named anti-Nephi-Lehi. Just, just a long name, right? Um, I guess, you know, we got other long names like Amalekiah and stuff like that. Um, but over here in verse 19 of chapter 24, um, uh, this way that Mormon describes this, I, I like. And and this kind of goes back to your sort of musings on, you know, what where is Mormon in this point as he's um, fleshing out this narrative, doing his research and, and writing this down and trying to, to give us the parts that he feels are important and 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 uh, really tell us what what the Lord wants us to understand here. Yeah. So the way he describes this in verse 19, he says, they were firm 
and they would suffer even unto death rather than commit sin. And thus we see that they buried their weapons of peace. Well, that's an interesting thing here. And I think this this might be, I don't know for sure, but this might be one of those parts in here where Mormon writes it and then he's like, all right, that, that didn't sound exactly right. Let me explain myself better. Yeah, there's no whiteout when you're when you're scratching and etching things on the plates. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> or they buried the weapons of war for peace. And and this is a very the, these two phrases here are are very interesting to me because they they betray a mentality that possibly was Mormon's visceral or gut reaction natural man type of thing, which we all have, right? That weapons were a method of keeping peace, right? These are weapons of peace. A peacemaker. Um, yeah. Well, what do we have? We have a nuclear missile that we literally call a peacemaker, right? This weapon that, you know, all its whole purpose is just to mass murder as many people as possible. And we call it a peacemaker, right? So yeah, that that's a very natural type of view of weapons right these are to keep the peace right they if i if i walk around with a gun and people see i have a gun then they won't threaten me right so i'm i'm not necessarily belittling that mindset i think it's perfectly natural and 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 understandable to have it but um what mormon is telling us here is this that was not the mindset of these people and so he says they're weapons of peace, but let me tell you what they actually thought. They were weapons of war and they did it for peace. So this, there's so much to unbox here, but, but, um, you know, they didn't, they weren't just giving something up, right? They weren't just anti-violence anymore. They were pro-peace. And in order to in order to really be a people of peace that were actual peacemakers in the beatitude sense, they had to rid themselves of that. But it wasn't it wasn't a you know uh, a, a negative type of thing. It was because they wanted peace. They had to move in that direction, and so this was a natural emptying that they had to do. Um, in order for that. So I just like that last two, those last two words for peace. This isn't just against something. This is for something. And so they were being proactive about their actions. They desired this. And so that, that phrase there, um, even though it almost seems like it could have been a slip up of Mormon actually, I think says a lot. Yeah. I think that's really powerful that in fact, that that's really powerful. Because, I mean, even in our American tradition, we have the Colts Single Action Army revolver that they call the Peacemaker, right? Yeah. So it's, yeah. Even, it's even in our uh, cultural narratives where we have that kind of concept where we have weapons of war for peace. The, it's, the, it's the potential to create – I mean, this is, this is the single most defining assumption and axiom of a country's defense is that you have more ability of destroying the other person than they have to, of destroying you and that your morality is in that you can destroy them, but you just choose not to because of your goodness. And the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are going completely against that narrative. Well, or rather, as you said, they're not going against the narrative, but they're going too proactively towards something else entirely. And I've heard forever the argument 
And I really do think it comes on the back of the William Barrett uh, interpretation from the 1950s of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's that their nonviolence, as it were, was a covenant because they had been wicked. They simply, they swung to the opposite end of the pendulum. So, you know, they're on one side of the pendulum and they just swung to the other side. That they were completely murderous and so they were going to be completely not murderous. And so it wasn't a principle they were adhering to. That was just the sign of the covenant that they made that they wouldn't be murderous anymore. But that's not that's not it at all because we're talking here about something else entirely different. Something else is going on completely different here. And it says here in chapter 24, verse 6, there was not one soul among the people who had been converted into the Lord that would take up arms against their brother. And nay, they would not even make preparations for war. And also their king commanded that they, they should not. And then verse 18, and this they did, it being in their view a testimony to God and also all men that they would never use weapons again for the shedding of man's blood. Okay, that's where that idea comes from. And this they did, vouching and covenanting with God that rather than shed the blood of their brethren, they would give up their own lives, and rather than take away from a brother, they would give unto them. Okay, this is the Sermon on the Mount all over again, because this is Christ's method. When, when someone comes at you and hits you on the right cheek, that there is a consequence for every action is a pretty universal standard, standard accepted truth. What is in question, though, in Christ's doctrine is who's going to bear the consequence for that. And so the Sermon on the Mount is talking to the victim. It's talking to the person who's being persecuted. When Christ says, when you're hitting on the right cheek, turn to one the other also, he's not talking to the person who's doing the hitting. He's talking to the person who's being hit. When he talks to the person who's being sued, he's not talking to the person who's suing. He's talking to the person who's actually being threatened by the coercion of the state to have his possessions taken away from him. When he talks about conscription, he's not talking about the people who are enslaving. He's talking about the person being enslaved. He's always talking to the victim. And he tells the victim, there is a power imbalance. And you cannot do anything about it. But you are a peacemaker of the beatitude type. You are a beatitude individual. And this is what beatitude individuals do. Is that they suffer and they sacrifice in the name of Christ for the other. Now, Ben, you and I did a podcast together for LDS Liberty, and we'll put that in the show notes too, um, called The Doctrine of Perhaps. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I just listened to that a little while ago because uh, as I was reading through this, we came across those phrases, you know, as Ammon and his brethren were going to the people to, to preach, it says that they perhaps, you know, that perhaps they might uh, bring them to a knowledge of the truth. And so uh, this discussion that we did about the doctrine of perhaps was was very interesting, and it became uh, a discussion and, and fit really well with our concept of, of faith um, and what faith is, how it fits into the broader narrative of our theology and the priesthood and um, everything about our nature as spiritual and physical beings. So... You know, not to get too much into that, like I would recommend just if somebody's interested in, in our thoughts on that, they can go listen to that podcast. But essentially the idea being that perhaps the idea or the doctrine of perhaps is based on the concept that faith is a spiritual substance. And when we see in the other this spiritual potential, which is evidenced by the fact that we 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 love them. I mean, there'd be evidence to ourselves that we're actually 
um, filled with love, then we see their potential as a child of God or as offspring of deity, and we start seeing them how God sees them. And in that moment, our spiritual eyes or our eyes of faith see who they are. And we then will want to invite them to persuade them to be what they can be in a true sense, not not just spiritually what we can see their potential is, but actually realizing that potential by them seeing it as well. So this doctrine of perhaps is, is this idea that we aren't guaranteed any particular outcome, but we are to act in faith because of love, because we have changed our perspective to see people how God sees them. And so we want we naturally then will desire to do all we can do to invite and persuade those people to have that perspective as well, to see others, to see themselves as God sees them. So that's kind of sort of in a nutshell how I view that idea. What do you have to add to that, Shiloh? Yeah, I think that's a great explanation of it. With the doctor, perhaps I often think about Christ in Gethsemane because when he suffered and sacrificed that infinite and eternal sacrifice. We are told that it was for each one of us individually. Now, he didn't go through and be like, okay, that guy is going to take me up on this sacrifice and that girl is going to take me up on it and that kid's going to take me up over there and that druggard over there. Hey, but that rapist right there and this murderer right there, they're not going to take me up on it, so I'm not going to atone for them. He atoned for all people that perhaps they would take him up on it. So that, that atoning effect and that, that atonement, that infinite atonement for all people is one that he's not suffering and sacrificing for the other, that they will necessarily take him up on it. He's acting because that's who he is. That's just what Christ does. And when I see the anti-Nephi-Lehi's here, it says that, that when they saw the people coming against them, this is 24 verse 21. When they saw the people coming against them, they went out to meet them and prostrated themselves before the earth and began to call upon the name of the Lord. And they were in this attitude when the Lamanites began to fall upon them and began to slay them with the sword. And thus, without meeting any resistance, they did slay 1,005 of them. And we know that they were blessed for they have gone to dwell with their God. This is, this is really powerful. In the Beatitudes, blessed is the Greek word makarios, and it means that it's the state of one who has become a partaker of God. It's one who has experienced the fullness of what it means to be God. And in fact, blessed means, in that sense, not just happiness, not just like a Greek eudaimonia. It's the fullness of what God is. Literally, to be God is to be blessed. That's, that's the word that is going on. So when it says that they were blessed. It means that their act was demonstrating the very essence of what God would do if he were here. That there is no difference between the two. And they didn't do it because of some outcome-based reason. They didn't do it that if they do this, that maybe they can win them over here. They did it because that's what Christ does. They do it because that's their soul and their love for the other. 
Yeah, I see in that, uh, you know, just like you said, their, their, their design in this was um, simply to, to act as Christ would act. It wasn't um, that they were trying um, to achieve any particular outcome from this. Um, and, uh, you know, they were simply acting because of what their hearts were and, and this, and who they had become. And so that's that, that fits with that doctrine of perhaps, right. You know, they're, they're, they were acting in, in the best way they knew to bring about, um, the cause of Christ. Um, but they knew there wasn't necessarily any guarantee in that they were acting in faith. So what then happens here with the conversion of the people, because we have this sacrifice and from a, you know, this is sort of a, almost a pragmatic discussion here where it then goes on to say um, in verse 25, these people that had been, been slaying, it says they threw down their weapons of war and they would not take them again for they were stung for the murders which they had committed. So this, this martyrdom of this people is becomes a testimony and it's fulfilled in their actual literal following Christ to the cross and sacrificing themselves for the other, and it bears witness, and their blood, in this sense, cries from the ground for justice. And what's the justice? The conversion of these people. It's not revenge that they will die. The justice that it cries for is that these people will be pricked in their hearts and penitent and covenant with God that they will follow him. And so, and it came to pass that the people of God were joined that day by more than the number who had been slain. And those who had been slain were righteous people. Therefore, we have no reason to doubt that, but what they were saved. So um, I, sort of going back to the, the, the brief uh, reference we had to the Pulsifer article, he identifies within this story sort of these three mindsets towards war. Um, he talks about just war. Um, obviously it's not, that's not by its name in the book of Mormon. It's just what we in our Christian Western context would call just war theory, um, which is kind of, could be rebranded as saying defensive only. Now there's a lot of other stipulations and particularities to it, but, but that's the idea of defensive war. Um, that being one idea and attitude towards war. Um, another one in this story being one of pacifism, sort of rejection of war as um, a means to any particular end, um, or active nonviolence. So um, not just rejecting war, but actually doing things to try to bring about peace. Um, you know, trying to make efforts that, that promote peace as opposed to just rejecting war. Um, so his, his sort of identification of these three things actually got me thinking. And I realized there, there was actually really a lot more in, in this story, but then in the whole book of Alma that was presented. Um, and I saw a lot larger spectrum. Now, like I said, this is kind of all made up for me, but it helped me understand um, the context of attitudes of the different people, not just in this story, but the whole book of Alma. So I, I put these attitudes on a spectrum. And um, basically on one side, we have 
the uh, fullness of contention or anger. And that would be an attitude of aggressive warfare. Okay. A, a collective or a people that are bloodthirsty and basically engage in war simply for the conquest or enjoyment of it. Um, then moving, you know, away from that, we come to something like preemptive war, a people who engages in war as a, a preemptive measure to sort of save what they have, what they currently have. Um, it can be sometimes couched in terms of defensive, but it's not strictly defensive warfare because it's, it's preemptive. Now, when we get to chapter 26, we actually see during Alma, uh, Aaron, Ammon's discussion, goodness, we haven't even started talking about chapter 26. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this needs to be a two-parter, shall we? Um, so when we get to chapter 26, we see that the Nephites are actually, uh, a good number of the Nephites are actually sitting in the preemptive warfare area. They're willing to preemptively attack the Lamanites to you know, stop them from attacking them. Whereas the Lamanites in general, um, their narrative has mostly been a revenge type of warfare, which is sort of the next, um, the next category that I would say. Um, you know, we were wronged, and so we are going to wage war in order to right this wrong. That's the narrative of Amalekiah and Amaron. Um, obviously, you know, it doesn't just because they say that's the case doesn't mean that's what their hearts are really wanting. But in any case, that's an attitude, um, one of revenge. After revenge warfare, we come to the concept of just war, which is defensive only. You only uh, do things to protect yourself. I guess another, you never do preemptive. You never attack. You only defend. You stay in your lands. This is kind of where Captain Moroni sits, right? He's, he's actually pretty solid in most ways in sort of a just war type of mentality uh, we could have a longer discussion about that but um then yeah i'm sure we will <laughs> <laughs> um then we kind of come to the pacifist mindset which is a rejection of of war even defensive war as a, a way of of really preserving uh, society per se but but pacifism is just simply a rejection of war um at least the term itself. Um, obviously, people can say, oh, no, by pacifism, I mean this. I'm just talking about what I would term this mentality. Now, typically, I would say a person who who looks at pacifism as just a rejection of war doesn't really stay in that mentality for long because that's sort of a, a not category rather than an is. And so typically, you're going to see somebody move in the direction of something more what we would call nonviolence which is a tactic that isn't, you know, isn't just a rejection of war, but is actually an idea that is trying to do certain things to promote peace. Now, these things aren't necessarily focused on changing people's ideas or thoughts or hearts, but they're more about changing the situation, diffusing situations, um, you know, just trying to, to de-escalate types of things. You know, they're, they're working for peace and this is where we would probably place a lot of a lot of people who we might call Nobel Prize winners, right? Nobel Peace Prize winners. They they're trying to do things to promote peace. Beyond that, we start getting into the realm of of someone who 
isn't just trying to promote peace, but is actually has an ethic and a morality behind this. Someone who really is seeking to change people's ideas um, and trying to actually uh, persuade others to the concept that peace is a better way. This is what I would call testimony. And where we start seeing these people, people of Ammon, we see more that they're existing, that that their, their concept isn't just to reject war, but it's actually to testify to their brethren. It's actually to try to persuade them of a better way. There's, there's a better thing for us, and you will find peace yourself. Not just bring about peace in society, but you will find peace yourself if you choose this way. And then the, the progression from that is actually coming to Christ where not only are we trying to persuade others of this way, but we ourselves have become the peacemakers and we are willing to take upon that persecution because we've become a type of Christ and we have taken upon ourselves his name and we are actively sacrificing for our enemy, anyone that we come across because we love them and we don't just want to change their mind we want to change their hearts and have them converted to Christ and find peace as well so anyway this again uh this is all made up by me <laughs> but um i i really liked this as uh sort of sparked this idea in my mind that after i was reading that pulsifer uh paper that um when we see this this mentality we can kind of see uh, maybe where a person's mindset is along this continuum, right? And we can kind of see, okay, they're here or, or I'm here. You know, we ask ourselves, where am I along this? Where do I, where do I fit along this continuum? And, and uh, what, do, where do I want to be? Um, and I can kind of see where, where I, my heart really is, as opposed to my mind, you know, my mind wants to, wants to tell me, you know, intellectually almost that I, that I believe Christ is the way. Um, but I, if I'm honest with myself, I know that my heart and my true actions um, aren't there yet, but I certainly want to go in that direction. And so I see the people of Ammon here as, as going in that direction. And when they are attacked and killed by the Lamanites and then the Lamanites are preparing to come against them a second time. We have this whole narrative of Ammon coming to them and saying, you know, what, what are we going to do? And basically them saying, well, we hadn't really planned to do anything. You know, we we're living our lives. Like we made a covenant and, and we don't fear death and, and we've already accepted this. Um, and, maybe the term wouldn't be we're okay with what's happening, but we're at peace. Regardless of what war is happening here, we're at peace. And uh, and Ammon saying, you know, I, I don't want this outcome. You know, let's see if we can figure something out here. I like what you had to say about those steps and progressions. Like the Beatitudes, I, Matthew does something rhetorically fascinating in the Beatitudes. 
and several scholars have written about it in that the first beatitude, the being poor in spirit, and the last beatitude, being persecuted, all have the same blessing. It's blessed are those who are persecuted, and blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's fascinating about that is it's a rhetorical device it's, it's broadly understood that basically connects the first and the last together. That those who have gone through the entire process of the sermon or of the Beatitudes are basically right back at the beginning. That there really is no like getting out of this thing. The Beatitudes are something that we're constant, consistently cycling through. So it takes the Beatitudes from a hierarchy and it basically just connects the first one to the last to make it one eternal round. So that really shows, and it really takes the pride out of it, because that means that someone who's working on number six in a part of aspect of their life might be working on number three in another, whereas somebody else is doing the exact same way. One might be a number eight, and one might be a number or number one in another area. That we are all at different stages and places of this in our lives. We're consistently emptying out the natural man, and we're consistently being filled. And so I know there's a, a misperception in a lot of ways that once you've done one step, then you can naturally move on to number two and you never have to go back to number one. But that's not what Matthew's getting at with the Beatitudes. And so as you were talking about that, Ben, I could, I could see myself in like each one of those steps. Uh, like there's a piece of me and a part of me in each phase. <laughs> I'm not like holistically in like one camp. I'm like, yeah, that, that still can... have an aggressive part. Huh? Yeah. I still have an aggressive part. Like, yep. I, I, I can see how there's a part of me in that one. And uh, yeah, yeah. I can see how there's a part of me in that one. And ah, oh, crud, I can see there's another one there. Me there. Oh man. I'm kind of in this, in this higher peacemaker stage. I got the desire to be there. You know, you said that Nobel laureate stage of just like talking about peace. I'm like, yep, that's kind of where I'm at. Am I ready to go sacrifice and to take my cross to Calvary? Oh, <laughs> if I'm being completely <laughs> if, <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, I, I might be more like the Nephites in this area than I want to admit. And so that's where that's where I, I'm coming to myself. So when I say I believe in the stuff, I, I I find so much there. It's not that I've obtained it. Man, this is a journey that we're all on. We're all going through this. And I love what President Kimball said, and Ben, if we quote from this once, we're going to quote from it a thousand times. We've already mm. quoted from it a thousand times. We're going to do it again. June 1976, President Kimball ends up writing in the bicentennial edition of the Ensign that celebrated the Declaration of Independence. It was June 1976. As the first presidency message, he ends up penning what's called the false gods we worship. And it was the first presidency message for that, for that month. And it is one of the single greatest prophetic sermons I've ever read. And in it, he says, in spite of our delight in defining ourselves as modern and our tendency to think that we possess some sophistication that no people in the past world have ever had, in spite of all these things, we are on the whole an idolatrous people, a condition most repugnant to the Lord. I'm going to read that again. And so often it seems to be with people having such a firm grasp on things of the world, that which is celestial, that no amount of urging and no degree of emergency can persuade them to let go in favor of that which is celestial. Satan gets them easily in his grip. If we insist on spending all of our time and resources building up for ourselves a worldly kingdom, that is exactly what we are going to inherit. We are a warlike people. 
easily distracted from our assignments of preparing for the coming of the Lord. When enemies rise up, we commit vast resources to the fabrication of gods of stone and steel, ships, planes, missiles, and fortifications, and depend upon them for protection and deliverance. When threatened, we become anti-enemy instead of pro-kingdom of God. We train a man in the art of war and call him a patriot, thus in the manner of Satan's counterfeit of true patriotism, perverting the Savior's teaching. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. We forget that if we are righteous, the Lord will either not suffer our enemies to come upon us, and this is a special promise to the inhabitants of the land of the Americas, or he will fight our battles for us. This he is able to do, for he has said at the time of his betrayal, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? We can imagine what fearsome soldiers they would be. President Kimball continues, He says, what are we to fear when the Lord is with us? Can we not take the Lord at his word and exercise a particle of faith in him? Our assignment is affirmative, to forsake the things of the world as ends in themselves, to leave off idolatry and press forward in faith, to carry the gospel to our enemies, that they might no longer be our enemies. You know, I see Ammon in 26, and he's carried away to this sense of almost boasting, right? (laughs) And Aaron calls him out on it. And Ammon's like, listen, I'm not boasting in my own strength. Do you realize what's happened? Do you really see what's gone on? We've upset and turned over, and we have reevaluated the entire way the world works. And he goes, do you remember the Nephites when when we were going to come up here? Do you remember what they said to us? He says, do you remember our brethren that they said unto our brethren in the land of Zarahemla that we're going up to the land of Nephi to preach unto our brethren, the Lamanites, and they laughed us to scorn? For they said unto us, do you suppose that you could bring the Lamanites to a knowledge of the truth? Do you suppose that you can convince the Lamanites of the incorrect traditions of their fathers as stiff-necked a people as they are whose hearts delight in the shedding of blood, whose days have been spent in the grossest of iniquities, and whose ways have been the ways of the transgressor from the beginning? Now, my brethren, do you remember that this was their language? And moreover, they did say, hey, let's take up arms against them, that we destroy them in their land, that we destroy them and their iniquity out of the land, lest they come and overrun and destroy us. But behold, my beloved brethren, we came not into the wilderness with the intent to destroy our brethren, but with the intent that perhaps we might save a few of their souls. See, when we carry the gospel to our enemies, they're no longer our enemies. And when I see Christ coming in his glory where he vanquishes and destroys the enemies... I no longer see a wrathful, vengeful God that burns the earth in fire and destroys the enemies in violence and bloodshed. I see the glory of God coming in mercy and compassion, in long-suffering, in patience and persuasion. I see a God who sits with his enemies that they're no longer his enemies. I see the Sermon on the Mount winning the day. I think that's what Ammon's starting to see. I don't know if he's there yet. But I think that's what he's starting to see. 
because then he starts to pontificate, he starts to think about what these anti-Nephi Lehi's are doing. And he's like, we have suffered all manner of affliction and all of this that perhaps, that perhaps there's no guarantee, just perhaps we might be the means of saving some soul. And we supposed that our joy would be full if perhaps we could be the means of saving some. But behold, we can look and see with the fruits of our labors. And are they few? I say unto you, nay, they're many. And we can witness of their sincerity because of their love towards their brethren and also towards us. For behold, they had rather sacrifice their lives than even to take the life of their enemy. And they have buried their weapons of war in the earth because of their love towards their brethren. And now behold, I say unto you, has there been so great love in all the land? I say unto you, nay, not even among the Nephites. You know, Ammon is a Nephite. Ammon has wielded the sword. Ammon knows what this means. Ammon is one who includes himself in this. For behold, the Nephites would take up arms against their brethren, that they would not suffer themselves to be slain. But behold, how many of these our brethren have laid down their lives? And we know that they have gone to their God because of their love and their hatred to sin. See, it wasn't just that they had been converted and that they just wanted, didn't want to murder anymore. It was because they actively saw God in the other. See, once you're filled with God and you're full of mercy, you can't have anything else but mercy for those who harm you to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, to give instead of being taken from. See, nonviolence is not passive. It's hyperactive, it's bold, it's imaginative, and it's engaging. It's a struggle. It's a fight. I dare say it's a war. But its weapons are charity. It's brotherhood. It's sacrifice and suffering. It's patience. It looks into the eyes of the irrational and the inhumane, and it searches deep to discover the essence of the enemy's humanity. And with the willingness to self-sacrifice and suffer, perpetually returning goodness for evil, the nonviolent brings the offender's conscious humanity to the forefront. And it's in that singular moment that nonviolence allows the offender to regain his humanity and freedom of conscience without fear or reprisal or punishment or animosity, consequence, retaliation. Just in that moment, the nonviolent stands as a type of a savior and a redeemer to their fellow men's inhumanity. See, nonviolence isn't weak. It's the way of the strong. It's the way of the courageous. It's the way of the brave. And only in a hyperactive state of nonviolence are we ever truly free. Because it's in that place that we realize we don't fear death and we can carry our own cross to Calvary because we know in who we trust. And we see that in this people. And we see they weren't just weren't just concerned with keeping their covenant. They were really concerned with emulating their God because of his love and his mercy towards them. And when those who came upon them and slayed them then realized what was happening and laid down their weapons and repented there's no evidence here that they were brought into any court of law and accused and convicted of murdering others. 
Rather, they were accepted immediately among the people of Ammon and immediately received mercy and immediately received and felt the love of God. That's a very interesting contrast to how the Nephite and Lamanite civilizations functioned. And we see this continued and perpetuated of this people. In fact, even all the way into the book of Helaman, when we come to Samuel the Lamanite, he references the people of Ammon and how they are still keeping that covenant. And that anybody who wants to join them makes that covenant. That, you know, whatever you want to call it, the pledge of of nonviolence, but more than just a pledge of nonviolence, it's a pledge to follow Christ, to actually take upon them the name of Christ and to sacrifice for their brethren so that they may testify, they may bear testimony, witness to them of the love of God. So here in this story, after Ammon gives this, this great sermon, which chapter 26, it might be my favorite chapter in the Book of Mormon, but that's really difficult to say. (laughs) Um, It's my favorite one right now, but tomorrow it'll be something else probably. Here come the Lamanites again to attack the people. And here we, we had this discussion about what really is, what's going on with this people. Are they, are they really afraid to die? And so that's why they pack up and leave. Or is there some other sub narrative going on here where we can really see that, this people actually still doesn't fear death and their motivations, if we can call it that for uh, leaving and going over to the Nephites are actually something different. And they're more based on uh, Ammon and his desires and his culture and the Nephite culture than they are explicitly what the anti-Nephite Lehi's see as expedient to themselves and, and their society. Yeah, we're going to find out. One of the things about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's when we're talking about that final battle when they've already suffered, they've already lost 1,005 of them, and they gained more than was lost. Now, that wasn't the purpose by which they went out. That was just a a consequence. But now they're coming after the, the wicked are coming after them again. And we begin to see that the the narrative that was framed by Professor Barrett was one that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's had a fear, and so they ran away to the Nephites for protection. That, that that was what it did. They had to flee and go to the Nephites, and there was the Nephites that protected them, and that's where they had to go. So basically, it, this is what cemented the narrative that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's example was only that they made covenants and they stuck next to them. It didn't really matter what the covenant was. They just stood next to it. There's so much more going on. And what cemented that narrative was that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's supposedly run away and they're now protected by the Nephites. And what we find here, just like you said, Ben, is that that's not what the evidence here in the text says. Because the evidence in the text here says that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's had completely lost all of their fear of death. Death was no longer a thing for them. They lived in a state of love. They lived in a state of conversion where they knew they were redeemed 
and whether in this life or the next life. You know, I, I talked about it before, but even it was so powerful when President Nelson talked here several weeks ago when he said, you know, if I'm on this side of the veil or the other side of the veil, it doesn't really matter to me. And he was no nonchalant. And that story of him on the airplane where the airplane engine had gone out and, and he thought he was going down to meet his maker, but he was completely calm. You know, that's the state of someone who knows their eternity, who knows their eternal state. When we no longer fear death, I mean, death is kind of the thing you don't come back from, right? Supposedly, I mean, I guess a few people, I get Lazarus, right? Um, <laughs> but it's supposedly that thing that we don't come back from. You know, Ben and I, we've both lost friends to death. We've lost family to death. And there's a pain there. There is a, there's a companionship that is, there's a hole. It feels like there's a hole there. And for me, the gospel has filled that hole with love and hope and a brightness of something newer and better. And I see the anti-Nephi-Lehi's thinking about it in the same terms, but far more powerful than, than I can say I have. <laughs> and so when this is all going on, it, it, it really struck me, this reading of it in Alma 27, when it says, and now it was when Ammon and his brethren saw the work of destruction among those who were so dearly beloved and among those who had so dearly beloved them, for they were treated as though they were angels sent from God to save them from everlasting destruction. Therefore, when Ammon and his brethren saw the great work of destruction, they were moved with compassion. And they said unto the king, let us gather together this people of the Lord and let us take them down to the land of Zarahemla to our brother and the Nephites, that we may flee out of the hands of our enemies, that we be not be destroyed. And the king said unto them, Behold, well, the Nephites will destroy us because of the many murders and sins which we have committed against them. And I don't look at, I used to look at this verse as a, a verse, a, a, a statement of fear. Well, we're afraid here to be destroyed, but if we go there, we're going to be destroyed too. And I don't read that that way anymore. I read this here with the context because it's going to say specifically later on that they had completely lost their fear of death. So if we've lost the fear of death, how do we then interpret King Lamoni's statement? Well, the Nephites will destroy us because of the many murders. And Ammon said, well, I'll go and inquire of the Lord. And if the Lord say unto us to go down to our brethren, will you go? And the king said unto him, well, yeah, if the Lord saith unto us to go, then well, of course we'll go down to our brethren. And we will be there and we will be their slaves until we repair everything that we have taken away from them, basically, for the many murders which we had committed against them. And Ammon said to them, no, no, it's against the law of our brethren, which was established by my father, that there should be any slaves among them. Therefore, let, let us go down and rely upon the mercies of our brethren. And it was King Lamoni who like, well, no, let's go back to what the Lord wants. And he said to them, go, yeah. go inquire of the Lord. <laughs> I get what you're saying, Ammon. I get what you're feeling. Ammon is fearing death. He, he's looking with compassion over the people and he loves them so valiantly, but even he's recognized that they have something that the, the Nephites have never seen. He, they have something that they would rather suffer death. No Nephite, even himself, has even gotten to that place yet, it seems. But King Lamoni is like, well, okay, sure, go inquire of the Lord. And if he saith unto us, go, hey, we'll go. Otherwise, we'll just stay here and perish in the land. Yeah, I see the motivations or the reasons for the people of Ammon going to 
discipline of Nephi is as kind of what you've outlined here. In verse four, it talks about how much they loved and revered Ammon. And so when Ammon is pleading with them and inviting them to come down to the land of Nephi, they, you know, part of their reason for going is simply because Ammon asked them to, you know, and uh, when a friend asks you to do something, no matter what that means, a lot of times you just go and do it. And um, so they're, they're willing to go down. But what I, what I love and is so powerful to me um, uh, that I'm seeing right now out of this is that they are willing to suffer whatever consequences are coming their way because of their past actions. They, this is meekness to me. Um, they are saying the Nephites will destroy us and that's fine. You know what? Uh, we deserve it. We murdered a bunch of them. So that's okay. Or we'll be their slaves. That would be a natural consequence of what we've done. And we're, we're okay with that too. You know, whatever the Lord wants, we're willing, whatever it means that we have to suffer the consequences of our actions that's okay. We're not concerned about that because we already have been redeemed spiritually and we feel the love of God. And that's what we're, that's the reality we're living. So whatever consequences of our past actions we have to experience, it's not a big deal to us. That's fine. We'll, we'll do that. The, the meekness in that is, is great. And, and along with that, you know, the King insisting that we really get the mind and will of the Lord on this matter. Right. And, and I love how you pointed out there that, that Ammon's like, almost it's a rhetorical, well, I'll go ask the Lord and uh, we'll see what he says. And then um, the king's like, oh yeah, you know, we'll hear what the Lord says and, and we'll be their, their slaves. And Ammon starts making this legal argument. Oh, you know, don't worry about it. The law won't let that happen. And uh, the king's like, <laughs> almost implicitly, he's like, Ammon, you know, like, I the law doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> um, I want to know what the Lord thinks. And Ammon's like, okay, yeah, you're right. You know, this must have been pretty humbling for Ammon, you know, to try to come with this argument to persuade the king and the king to come back to Ammon and say, no, Ammon, let's let's really find out what the Lord thinks about this. So I, I love this little exchange here. It's so fascinating. It, it shows Ammon's really anxiety and love for this people. He's trying to protect them. But that these people truly have been converted and they're not going to be persuaded by empty arguments. They're only persuaded by actual love and, and no, and finding out what the mind and will of the Lord is on this matter. So I, I, I just love that. Yeah. And when, when you realize that Lamoni in that vision that he's had, that he's been saved and he knows he's been saved and when he's in this state of conversion that not even Ammon is in, it's almost as if the student has kind of surpassed the master that, you know, that it, it, there, there's a knowledge that Lamoni is under. There's a way of being and seeing that even Ammon isn't completely under. And I've always wondered, why did Lamoni require Ammon to go pray when Lamoni is, you know, he's, he's who hmm. he is. And what's coming to me right now is, is I think in a lot of ways, this is just Lamoni's recognizing where Ammon is at. You know, something you said just made me realize maybe it's something where Ammon is at and Lamoni recognizes that and that Ammon needs to have that, Ammon needs to have that confirmation almost more than Lamoni does because Lamoni really doesn't care. There's not a fear of it. If he, if they're, if they're blotted out of the land, then so be it. And if 
if we need to suffer and be slaves to the Nephites for them to feel it's justified, as you said, they were spiritually justified and they were spiritually forgiven already. They don't need to make it amends with anybody, eternally speaking. But I love what uh, what you brought out with Lamoni says that if they go to the if they go to the people of Nephi, okay, yeah, and we will suffer whatever needs to be suffered for them to feel and for them to feel fulfilled, to f- right. for them to feel like we have been maybe punished enough. But Lamoni doesn't need that. He doesn't need to make up for anything. It's just he realizes that maybe somebody else feels that we need to have that. Go inquire of the Lord. And I love when the Lord tells what the Lord tells Ammon. He says, get this people out of the land that they perish not for Satan has great hold upon the hearts of the Amalekites who stir up the Lamanites to anger against their brother and to slay them. Therefore, get thee out of the land and blessed are this people in this generation for I will preserve them. See, the Lord's got something else reserved for this people. And the Lord never says, take them over to the Nephites. They're going to defend them. All the Lord says is tell them to get out, to leave, to run. That's it. So Ammon is saying, let's go to the Nephites. Let's leave the land. Where are we going to go? Well, let's go to the Nephites. Lamoni is like, it doesn't matter where we go. But if we go to the Nephites, they'll probably kill us too. So that's not going to be a safer bet. And he's like, well, and like you said, a legal argument. <laughs> Lamoni is like, <laughs> I'm not having that. And then the Lord tells Ammon what Ammon needs to know. Just get them out to the other land. So Ammon's like, okay, so they leave. And I love when they put it to the voice of the people because it's the Nephites and the Nephite narrative. And this is what Ammon said. I mean, this is literally fulfilling, fulfilling Ammon's words. That the, layman, or that the Nephites would take up arms against their brethren and they would not suffer themselves to be slain. So when it finally comes time to where the people, the Nephites, in verse 22, it says, And it came to pass, the voice of the people came saying, Behold, we will give up the land Jershon, which is in the east by the sea, to the lands which joins the land of Bountiful, which is on the south of the land of Bountiful. And this land, Jershon, is the land which we will give unto our brethren for an inheritance. And behold, we will set our armies between the land Jershon and the land of Nephi, that we may protect our brethren in the land of Jershon. And thus we do for our brethren on account of their fear to take up arms against their brethren, lest they should commit sin. And this great fear came upon because of their sore repentance, which they had on account of their many murders and their awful wickedness. Now, what's fascinating about this to me is that if the Nephites have not entered into a sphere where they truly understand what the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are doing, how are they possibly... This is them projecting what they think is going on. Right. And so this is the Nephites, and as best as the Nephites can be benevolent, this is just like what we said is that those who have truly become beatitude people, the world will never truly understand them. They're basically wanderers in a world in a, in a world that it's not theirs. They're aliens in every country they go into. And in this way, the Nephite narrative and what the Nephites understand, and we're going to get into what the Nephites understand really fast, and we're going to see a very distinct difference and axiomatic principle about how the Nephites viewed themselves. And it's going to be completely different. And so it's fascinating. This is not the narrative that Professor Barrett brought out. This is not the the anti-Nephi-Lehi's needing physical protection to where they're trying to find anybody to defend them. They're not looking for anybody to defend. They're willing to die on any hill and just walk out and to meet their enemies. This is Ammon having anxiety, like you said, and I love that word anxiety, and loving his brethren, 
and the Nephites not truly understanding the Beatitude type person yet. But blessed are the Nephites for what they do because they come to a place where they could have done anything, but they, they, move or they are moved with compassion for what they do understand, and they make a space for something to happen. And I love that. Yeah, that it's it's really great story, you know, like because here come the Lamanites who were their enemies and were on this aggressive end of the spectrum here, and they're coming to the Nephites, and the Nephites are are starting to understand a little better um, that these people who were their enemies are now uh, offering to be saviors to them in a way because. They are offering to live among them as this Zion society and be an example to them. In fact, later it says here um, in verse 28, they did look upon the shedding of the blood of their brethren with the greatest abhorrence, and they never could be prevailed upon to take up arms against their brethren. And they, ne and they never did look upon death with any degree of terror for their hope and views of Christ and the resurrection. Therefore, death was swallowed up to them by the victory of Christ over it. Again, there's no fear here. This is that was the Nephites' perception of what was going on, and the the anti-Nephi Lehi's are happy to oblige. Um, they, you know, they're trying to to rebuild their culture, and they see uh, this opportunity to be among the Nephites. Um, there's plenty other people of the church, you know, that are supposed to share their faith. Um, and, you know, I, we have sort of this exchange here um, in verse 24, uh, the Nephites say, on condition that they will give us a portion of their substance to assist us that we may maintain our armies. And, you know, of course, the Antinephi Lehi's are like, uh, you can have whatever you want. <laughs> like, <laughs> everything we have is yours. I mean, we are completely free with our substance. So you can use it to maintain your armies or whatever. We know who protects us, you know. Uh, we know what our covenants are. Um, so back here to, to verse 29, therefore they would suffer death in the most aggravating and distressing manner, which could be inflicted by their brethren before they would take up sword or scimitar to smite them. And thus they were a zealous and beloved people, a highly favored people of the Lord. And it says, um, maybe it's, it's a little earlier chapters that you know that it says that they were distinguished by their zeal toward God. So these people were viewed, even by the Nephites, as being core, unshakable, faithful members of the church um, that could be seen as a true righteous example. So these Lamanites now are able to come to the Nephites and be an even you know greater beacon, whereas the Nephites thought that they were the beacon. Right, the Nephites thought they had the superior culture, and it was it was their job, and and um, and you know even they were going <laughs> to take preemptive war to the Lamanites to destroy them to protect themselves. And here come this group of Lamanites who have been converted, and it's just 180 degrees different in every way from what the Nephites were afraid was going to happen. And that they wanted to take up arms against them. Instead, we have a completely, not just peaceful people, but deeply converted to Christ people who not only won't hurt the Nephites, but can greatly enrich their faith that are able to come and be with them. So 
just a, just a fascinating way that this this story develops here. Um, we have chapter twenty eight that um, is sort of this interlude chapter here that that kind of gives us a connection with the history of what's going on. Um, we have these great battles uh, that happen uh, because whenever you're preaching righteousness, the the wicked will often be stirred up to anger. Um, and uh, so the, the Nephites have these battles with, with the Lamanites. Um, you know, it might be interesting to sort of explore the, the possibilities of, of how the narrative might have gone here if the Nephites had uh, sort of tried to learn from the anti-Nephite Lehi's and, and their culture and how they would have done it. I, I, I don't know. Probably don't have time to get into that. But, you know, 28 does seem to focus on some good things here towards the end uh, in terms of how the Lord can make good out of any situation, says in verse 14. And thus we see the great reason for sorrow and also rejoicing, sorrow because of death and destruction among men, and joy because of the light of Christ unto life. I, I like that he uses the word sorrow there because, you know, before we, we pointed out that the Antonephi-Lehi's, they didn't fear death. And it wasn't, there wasn't any horror in it, but there certainly is sorrow, right? And that's okay. Life is supposed to be part of sorrow. And sorrow is not something that is foreign to the character of God. In fact, we learn from a doctrine and covenants. We learn from modern revelation and many examples in the scripture that sorrow is an integral part of the character of God and our not just earthly experience, but our eternal experience is not just about joy, it's also about sorrow. Uh, so I like that there in contrast to the joy because of the light of Christ unto life. I love that. Here in 28, I think 28 is often a completely overlooked chapter because I, I think we get a really, really, really big clue into exactly what Mormon is trying to do here in the book of Alma. Because the book of Alma really is split into two very distinct narratives. The first half of the book of Alma is all about missionary work. It's all about the pains of missionary work. It's all about how to convert and how to, uh, to use the word of God to change sociopolitical and socio-religious and sociocultural narratives. And the last half of the book of Alma is all about war. And wow, why? why? What's Mormon trying to do? And so here we see in verse 8 and 9, Mormon making a really clear distinction about what he's doing. And thus, and this is the account of Ammon and his brethren, their journeys to the land of Nephi, their sufferings in the land, their sorrows, their afflictions, their incomprehensible joy, and the reception and safety of the brethren in the land of Jershon. And now may the Lord, the Redeemer of all men, bless their souls forever. Cut. Verse 9, and this is the account of the wars and contentions among the Nephites and also the wars between the Nephites and the Lamanites, and the 15th year of the reign of the judges is ended. I think they split the chapter wrong here. I think that I think verse 8 should have been a chapter break because that really ends Ammon's story. So this whole thing that's been going on, all of the missionary work, because we, if we go back to Alma chapter 1, almost where we began these podcasts, we have the, for, the the Nephite narrative and the Lamanite narrative. How does the missionary work in the Nephites and how, with the people who are supposedly have the gospel? And how do we take the gospel to people who've never heard it before and who are antagonistic against it? We got two narratives. 
and the missionary work among one people and then the missionary work among the other people. Break. That ends that section. Now, let's talk about war. <laughs> and so from here on out, I mean, of course, we're going to have uh, we're going to have Alma talking about Korahor. And I think, you know, that Korahor is going to have a lot of uh, a lot of just like Nehor did to the first half of Alma. Korahor is going to have a lot of influence to the second half of the Book of Mormon going into like Amalekiah. And so we're going to start to see new narratives pull out about how war starts, how to deal with things. And it seems to be that the Lord is telling us and there are Mormons trying to tell us here, guys, this is how missionary work can solve things. And here's the results and the fruit of that. It's not always going to be good. Sometimes if you, uh, if you live the voice of Christ, if you literally are emptied out and are doing things according to the Christ in a beatitude way, you can expect the fires of Ammonihah, you can expect the swords of the Amulonites, and you can expect persecution, you can expect to flee, but you will also be given deliverance. But the thing is, is you're going to come to a place where it doesn't even matter. Okay, now let's shift gears. Now here's a people who are not living beatitude lives, who are not doing that same process as a people but they are taking upon themselves. We do end up with really, really, really good people, all right? The best of the best of the best people in a society of individuals who have not been converted like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. So we'll get our Captain Moroni's and our Helaman's and our Tiancom's, and we're going to get our Lehi's, and they're going to be amazing people. But they're, you're fundamentally in a society that is not the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. And they're not working according to the same basic concepts as the anti nephi Yes, they both have faith in God, but as we'll see here, the Book of Mormon is really clear and distinct as we get to look at it closer, that there is a very distinct narrative break right here in, in the middle of chapter 28. And I, and you brought it up in halfway through 14. I'll include verse 13 he, where Mormon says, And thus we see how great the inequality of man is because of sin and transgression. You know, we saw all sorts of inequality, both in the Nephites and in the Lamanites because of sin and transgression and the power of the devil, which comes by the cunning plans by which he hath devised to ensnare the hearts of men, right? That, that inequality was the entire purpose for why he talked about Alma. Remember in mm -hmm. chapter four, it was the inequality of the people that really got Alma up and out and the cunning plans by which he devised to ensnare the hearts of men. That's Zeezrom all the way. Right. And, then, and then verse 14, and then we see the great call of the diligence of men to labor in the vineyards of the Lord. And thus we see the great reason of sorrow and also of rejoicing, sorrow because of death and destruction among the great joy and because of light of Christ unto life. That's the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. So we start to see 13, I really think, is talking about all everything he talked about, Alma, and 14 is everything we talked about, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Now let's give a little bit of Alma here. What is Alma kind of thinking about this whole thing? And it's like, man, we're just going to give 29 here. I can imagine Mormon going through the record, and he's coming across Alma 29, this this portion here. And man, if I came across it, I'd include it. Well, yeah, it's almost like Al, uh, Alma's psalm, right? You know, Nephi kind of had his, I kind of look at this as kind of Alma's psalm. Um, he's seeing all of the the great things that, preaching the gospel and power and authority can do for the people. And he's like, if I could only ramp that up, you know, to the nth degree, like an angel does. Um, because, you know, when the angel came to me and shook the earth, I repented. 
how many other people are out there that are just like me, that are doing terribly wicked things simply because they need a wake-up call, right? And so Alma's like, we could just do that. <laughs> and as soon as he says it, you know, he's, he's it's just kind of writing in his journal, I think, almost. As soon as he said it, it's, it's so poetic. He says, you know, but obviously there's there's really something more to it that that is not exactly the way. That's not the exact thing that we're talking about here. So I love verse 10. I, when I see many of my brethren truly penitent and coming into the Lord their God, then is my soul filled with joy. Then do I remember what the Lord has done for me, even that he hath heard my prayer. Yea, then do I remember his merciful arm, which he extended towards me. Um, in other words, I I didn't deserve in any way to be redeemed, um, but the Lord was merciful to me. And so surely there are plenty of other people out there that I may think don't deserve to rede be redeemed, and probably they don't deserve it. But because the Lord is merciful and he was merciful to me, I'm going to go out and try to find those people. So, you know, even though there is going to be this transition into the war stuff, we actually still get quite a few chapters of Alma here, right? It's almost like, um, you know, Mormons, Mormon still likes a lot of stuff to, to do with Alma because we get all of his preaching among the Zoramites and then we get all of his discussions with his sons. And uh, so there's a you know there's a great bunch of bunch of great preaching coming and into good uh, doctrine that uh, persuades people to repentance, especially from Alma and Amulek. So yeah, next week when we get into Korahor, Korahor is one of my favorite stories. Um, it was always a popular story when I taught seminary. Um, yeah, I don't know why it's so much fun for seminary students to like mm -hmm. horror horror. It's just, I don't know, it's an easy one to teach and it's it's fun to, in a kind of a legal setting. But yeah, the Zoramites are definitely that's gonna be that's gonna be a great discussion with the Zoramites. But man, Ben We're gonna I, I'm I'm really glad. It's like it's like this story with the anti Nephi Lehi's is like watching one of the best movies ever that just stir your soul in the deepest right. place if you can really identify it with and you're left wanting a sequel and you're like man i really really want a sequel and then in you know a couple chapters later in the war chapters we get the sons of the sons of uh, uh helaman and, and the stripling warriors and that's a fascinating discussion and how it ties back to this and eventually right. what the people of uh ammon do after the wars are over so it's like we almost get like a little hint of a micro sequel <laughs> and again, we get to come back to those people. But man, I love these. I love these people. They, they, they just, they inspire me to be so much better than I, I, I can imagine myself being. Well, I know what you mean by, you know, it being like a movie that afterwards you just kind of sit there with your mouth a little bit open and there's some nice music playing while the credits are rolling and you're just like thinking through everything you just watched and experienced and, uh, and, you know, trying to kind of fit it into, to what you had. Um, we just watched, my wife and I just watched, uh, just mercy. We, we watched it over a couple days, you know, cause we don't usually get enough time to sit down and finish the whole thing. But that was, that was kind of one of those, you know, where you sat at the end and just kind of sort of experienced what, what it was trying to teach um, along the lines though, of this story, you know, it, it reminds me of the movie, which I believe is, 
is based on true story. I don't know how much of it is true, but do you remember that movie, The Mission? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So I probably need to watch that again, but it's kind of along these lines, right? This guy goes and preaches among this native people and uh, they convert and they uh, become converted to Christ and they won't take up arms and they are slaughtered by the armies that come in and everything. Anyway, it reminds me that I need to watch that, that movie again. We see these things playing out all over the place. The early, earliest Christians were martyrs just like this. People have taken seriously, taking upon themselves the name of Christ. And it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful story to read and to see the spirit and compassion and love when that light of Christ is awoken within us and when we see it awoken within others. And not just what they are capable of doing, but why they're capable of doing it. And for me, I find a lot of a lot of power in the why. And that's where that's where I always usually look for something. I'm I'm not really a what kind of a guy or a how. <laughs> I'm I'm very much more of a why. And I see the why of these anti Nephi Lehi's. And man, thank God for them. Yeah. Well Ben. Uh, let's do this again next week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it. Okay. Well until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>